0: Greetings and welcome to Overtime, presented by VitalSea, where we explore the lives and journeys of world-class athletes, their careers as competitors, and the next steps they took in their lives once they stopped playing. Who better to embody rediscovery, reinvention, rejuvenation than great athletes? How does a young woman born in Germany, post-World War II, grow up to not only define a sport, but work tirelessly to develop it, make it a commercial and athletic success, overcome its placement in global culture, and in doing so, change the lives of many women, not only athletically, but from a personal and social perspective. Catherine Switzer is a modern pioneer, not only in her actions, but her thoughts, foresight, relentless spirit, from a childhood that gave her a minimal chance to live out her athletic, competitive spirit, to creating chances for herself to compete that led to a defining moment in sports history, to a tireless career as a determined competitor skilled journalist, event organizer, sport politician, sponsorship guru, author, broadcaster, motivational speaker, and friend to many. This woman has defined women's marathon running from both a personal and professional standpoint for over 50 years. Hello, Catherine.
1: Hello, Lynn. Honestly, I don't think I've ever had such a splendiferous introduction. Thank you very much for that. Really amazing.
0: Well well earned. Now, before we get started on your journey, one of the things that really, really defines what you've done is the fact that when you grew up, born in the 40s, growing up in the 50s and the 60s, the state of women and women playing sports was virtually non-existent. Give us a quick overview on what it was like back in those days to be a young girl, a young woman who wanted to play sports.
1: Well, honestly, Lynn, the myths that surrounded us were huge and we laugh about them now, but many, many countries even today still believe these myths. And the biggest one was that if you were going to be a female athlete, you were never going to have children and never be attractive to men. So, of course, any little girl who was very, very interested in going out with the captain of the football team was never going to be an athlete, right? Um, or, and other things were whispered, like your uterus would fall out. That was the best one. Um, or you'd get big legs. You'd grow hair on your chest. You know, you would, uh, you, and and of course another one that was was makes me laugh so hard today is you'd turn into a lesbian. You know, like like nowadays. I mean, who cares? We embrace everybody, and um, it doesn't matter. In fact, in fact, sports brings out our differences and our diversity, and uh, and makes us inclusive. But anyway, so as a little girl. I'll never forget. It was a, really the defining one of the defining moments of my life. I came home from elementary school. I was twelve years old, and we in those days went right into high school. There was no such thing as intermediate school, and I was at a little country school, and so I was now going to go to this big high school with fifteen hundred kids and you know big rah rah football team and everything. And I noticed um, that that the prettiest and popular, most popular girls were those who were cheerleaders. Well, there wasn't anything else, but cheerleaders were it. So I said to my dad, when I finished elementary school, I'm going to try out for cheerleading when I go to high school in the autumn. And he was eating his dinner and he stopped right in the middle of it. and He put the knife and fork down and he said, oh, honey, you don't want to do that. And I said, what? And he said, cheerleaders cheer for other people. You want people to cheer for you. The game is on the field. And I just looked so crestfallen. And he said, hey, come on. Your school next year has something called a field hockey team. He said, I don't know what it is, but it's for girls and it's about running. And I know you can run. And I said, oh, dad, I never, you know, even know what that sport is. And he said, hey, that doesn't matter. He said, if you ran a mile a day, you'd be the best player on the team. My dad was a really great motivator. I have to tell you. And I oh, said,
0: I can't, I, I can't run him.
1: Hmm? Sorry. Military
0: guy, right. Military.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But very conservative in many ways. But I mean, really, um, uh, but but really a motivator. And he said, come on. He said, you could run. I, I said, I can't run a mile. I can't possibly run a mile. It's like climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. He said, no, it's not. He said, come on. Ha- let's measure off our yard. We had a big yard. And he said, there we go. We figured it out. It was a math problem. Um, seven laps. He said, let's go right now. He said, I know you could do it right now. And I got out there and he said, okay. It's not about going fast. It's about finishing the job. I I mean, all of these things are just so important to everything I ever did in my life. And so I went off slogging around seven laps and I did it. Oh, my God, I felt like king of the hill. And I did that, Lynn, every day, that hot, stinking summer in Washington, D.C. I mean, the autumn came around. I made the field hockey team. I was really, and I was. I was one of the best players because I never got tired and nobody could catch me. And honestly. I played a lot of sports through high school. I just kind of repelled all the myths and the teasing and everything else because I felt so empowered from them. And the running in particular was the thing that made me feel like I had a victory under my belt every day. I would go into class. And I mean, here I was, I was 12 years old. I was a year ahead of myself. I was prepubescent. I was sitting next to, I remember the captain of the football team in an algebra class. And he was graduating that year and getting married and becoming an adult. And I was still playing with dolls. So the intimidation factor was pretty high, although I knew I ran a mile that day. And I felt, hey, he didn't. <laughs> and, and honestly, that sense of empowerment is everything. And it has changed my life. And as you said in the introduction, it's changed millions of women's lives. It's become a social revolution, not just in sport, but in women—ordinary women who are doing extraordinary things, things they never believed they can do—and they're changing their lives because they are empowered by this sense of, of accomplishment, and that changes everything. Once you know you can do something, you, you, it changes your life. Um, and and there we go. That's that's the story. That's the story. And 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 actually. It's funny how when you feel empowered also you can you can repel a lot of criticism and teasing and I got plenty of teasing but you know it didn't bother me I just laughed it off and then of course later I began training with men and they were always very very accepting of me so that's another story but but that's that's how it began and and that's why I always start my story Lynn telling people about my dad because if every parent in the world would just do one little thing for their kids to give them the opportunity to start, it, it could change their life, really.
0: Now, one of the things that, and again, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, um, your personality traits are so remarkable in the sense that you had this incessant determination. Nothing would stop you. Nothing, when you got yourself into a mind state, there was no one or nothing that Was going to stop what you wanted to accomplish, as you just alluded to. Where did this come from? I mean, I, I think I, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I don't know, you know, I, it's really funny, but
1: certainly at an early age, because I remember my father also saying to my mother, My God, she won't quit. And, um, and and he, he the nickname in our household was that I was the broken record. Do you remember when we had disc records, vinyls, yeah.
0: 45, 78? And-
1: yeah, and and 33 and a third. Um, and when it got stuck in a groove, it would go, na, 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 na. And that's what I was. I was the broken record. Na, 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 na. I just wouldn't stop. I, I don't know why. Maybe it's also a sense of insecurity, you know, that I have to keep at it. to, to... Things came hard to me. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't like immediately I could be a good athlete. Or I, I certainly, you know, struggled a lot in school probably because my parents started me early and advanced me too fast. and I just never felt like I could catch up, so I kept working hard on things.
0: Now, you go to Lynchburg College. You actually wanted to go to a bigger school, but you couldn't get in. and You wound up going to Lynchburg College.
1: (laughs) No, it wasn't that I couldn't get in. My parents didn't want me to go to a bigger place because they they wanted me to go to – First of all, a co-educational school, and there was only one of them in Virginia. You either had to go to girls' school or boys' school. And um, and they wanted me to go to school in Virginia where they lived because they wanted a, you know, a cheaper education. <laughs> state school, right? Yeah, state school. So so after after we had a deal, I was disappointed and, and my dad said again, he said, Well, since I'm paying for it, uh, he said, after two years, give it two years. Then if you want to switch schools, it's up to you. It's okay. And, um, uh, I gave it two years. He thought I would never switch. I did. And that was, a, it was, listen, both, both places were really good for me. Lynchburg was, it was, and still is a wonderful place. And it Lynchburg college has become Lynchburg university now, um, you know, it has, has nothing to do with the religious right. And it is, it's a wonderful school with, w- gave me wonderful opportunities. Um, but I, by that time, I wanted to be a journalist. And um, I, I had taken every journalism class at Syri- uh, that Lynchburg had. And I switched to Syracuse to study journalism because it's a fine, fine Newhouse school there
0: that I wanted to study. One of the best yeah. in the world. Yeah. Now, at Lynchburg, um, you got your first taste of running. Yes, well, I got
1: my first taste of competitive running. Yeah, Um, I had been I had been running in a few AAU meets, um, but at Lynchburg is where I got recruited onto the men's track team.
0: Exactly. Oh
1: my God, scandal in the South! You know, (laughs) (laughs) what's this girl doing running with guys, and she's wearing short shorts? You know. Um, you know, there were shorts and there were short shorts, track shorts were short shorts anyway. Uh, but the guys, I tell you, were wonderful, even at Lynchburg. And the coach said that, um, Hey honey, he said, he said, you know, I have a a couple of milers who, who lost their eligibility. And if you could just run the mile and finish it, I could get the points. Would you be willing to do it? And I said, Oh sure, coach, you know, happy to help. And uh, it was kind of like, if I could keep my basset hound in the inside lane for four laps, (laughs) we'd get the points. But no, the guys were wonderful. We got the points. And, of course, it made headlines. I had I had no idea that it was going to create such a sensation. And probably, Lynn, looking back on it, and I, got, I should do the research on this, but um, it, it might have been the first time a woman ever ran on a men's collegiate team officially because I could run in one conference but not the other. So I ran something called the uh, Dixie Conference, but I couldn't run in the Mason-Dixon Conference. See, whatever.
0: Now, when you did that for Lynchburg. And all of a sudden, did you think cognizantly that you were changing the direction of gender participation in sports? Did you have that in the back of your mind? Uh, no, but uh, look, you have to be realistic. I knew I was going to be noticed. I was really, really
1: noticed. And um, and from that point of view, I was happy because I wanted people to realize women could run a mile. I mean, my professors would come up to me and say, I can't believe you can run a mile. And I said, well, that's very easy. You know, I was already thinking about a marathon, you know, in the back of my mind. But anyway, um, so, so that was really important for people to understand that a woman could be an athlete. Um, and, and, and the acceptance from the guys, I think, was really profound. I think people were quite amazed by that, that, that there was no name calling or pillaring or laughing or guffawing. They were very helpful. Very, very helpful. I don't know if running... I, I hate to say this. I don't know if running is a different sport, but certainly I don't think I would have been so well treated if I tried out for the football team.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, you get to Syracuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, you start running. But one of the things you find out when you get to Syracuse is that there's virtually no intercollegiate athletics for women. And oh, wasn't
1: it? Yeah.
0: And this really got your dander up.
1: It really did. I couldn't believe I was at this powerhouse university. Really, a football, you know, Larry Zonka, Floyd Little, these guys, oh, you remember them, right? I mean, they were incredible. Um, and, And women had play days. (laughs) The <laughs> play days. I'd come from L- Little Lynchburg College in Lynchburg, Virginia. We had basketball, we had lacrosse, and we had uh, field hockey. So what was what? When the deal? Anyway, but I'd run on the men's team. So I went in and I, I talked to the men's track coach, and I said, you know, I'd like to run on the men's team if I could. And he said, well, it's against NCAA rules. But he actually had read about me because in uh, Sports Illustrated they had those little faces in the crowd uh, column. Brought- Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. And uh, I was in there and he had read that and, 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 but he said, but you would be welcome if you came out, uh, if you wanted to come out and work out with the team, but you can't run competitively with them. I said, okay, well, that's good enough for me. I doubt I could keep up with these guys anyway. I knew I couldn't anyway. But as I left his office, I, you know, when you pull a door shut and you hear something just before it shuts, just before it shut, I heard him burst out laughing and he said to his co- two colleagues, well, I guess I got rid of that one.
0: <laughs> and
1: that's what really steamed me. I said, now I have to show up because if I don't show up, you know, I'm not going to be taken seriously. And I showed up the next day. He was very surprised, but he was very polite. Uh, but but the, the real sensation of that was, was meeting um, his volunteer coach, you know, who a, a little guy who had become kind of the unofficial manager of the team. And, uh, and do you want me to tell that story now? Because that I mean, that was.
0: That's exactly where I was going. Arnie. Yeah. In, you Arnie. Meet him, and Arnie is this guy that basically, you know, loves to run, takes an affection to you. Go ahead. Tell the story. I'm sorry.
1: Well, oh no, I mean, I came out there and all the guys said, hey, welcome. Good to have you. You know, that kind of stuff. But Arnie, this little guy, really a, a small, wiry, and he was really old. He was 50, you know. <laughs> and Here I was 19 and he bounces over to me and he said, I've been out here for 30 years and we've never had a girl before. Oh, this is great. You know, under, and he was going around introducing me to everybody. And he was the university mailman. Now I cannot imagine a job worse in my life, I guess, maybe a garbage man, but being a mailman in Syracuse, New York, you know, we had nine yards of snow that year nine yards. I mean, we didn't see bare ground from October to May. And um, Arnie would schlep through the snow all day long, delivering mail to people. Then he would run to the field house, change clothes, and go out and train with the men's cross country team and, um, and through all kinds of weather just for one day in his life, which made him feel like a hero. And that was the day he ran the Boston Marathon. And he uh, would, had long since given up marathon running. And he'd run it 15 times, Boston. And so now he's out there with a clipboard and a whistle being a volunteer. And when I came, he said, oh, my knees are bad. My Achilles are bad. And, but he saw how slow I was and started running with me, really slow jogging. And would tell me these tales of the Boston Marathon. And I, I mean, I sort of grew up on Johnny Kelly, the elder and the younger and Clarence DeMar and all the great heroes until one day I told him I wanted to run marathon too. And he said, oh, that's ridiculous. A woman couldn't possibly run the marathon. Now, all this time, months had gone by, Arnie gets over his injuries. Because if you often run slowly and you're on grass and you stretch, you take your time, you, you, you heal better. And he got over his injuries. And pretty soon now we're out there running six and seven, 10 miles. Um, and when I told him I wanted to run the Boston Marathon, he said, no girl can run the Boston Marathon. And I said, well, Roberta Gibb ran the Boston Marathon last year. And then throughout history, there had been a few women. He said, no way, no way. And he said, that girl didn't run the Boston Marathon. She must have jumped out of the bushes. Well, she didn't wear a number, but she did do it. And he wouldn't believe that. And we argued. And finally, he said, I'll tell you what. He said, if you showed me in practice that you could cover 26.2 miles, I'd be the first person to take you to Boston. And I said, yeah. (laughs) So we trained like maniacs, cut a long story short. The day came, we ran 26 miles. And he was saying, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. you look really good. And I said, you know, I feel too good, Arnie. Let's, let's run another five miles because I think this course is short. And he said, you can run another five. I said, I feel great. You know, let's go. Don't you feel good? He goes, uh, uh. <laughs> and we ran 31 miles. I threw my arms around him. I said, we did it. We're going to Boston. And he fainted. <laughs> And when he came to, he said, the next thing that is changing the face of women's sports, he said, women have hidden potential in endurance and stamina. And I said, I said, you know what? It's the truth. I said, I can't outrun those guys in the team, but I can outlast those guys on the team. Because af- after we got to about 14 miles in training, other guys would say, you were crazy people. We're not going to train any further with you. You know, they were interested in going fast. And I couldn't go fast, I could only go long. And, um, and now we're seeing how women in fact are winning outright the big ultra races, the 100 milers, the six day races, three day races. Um, you know, they have incredible ability as we've learned from the channel swimmers you know, of cold resistance um, and, and fat utilization. So we are only now beginning to explore this whole new area of women's sports it's going, to, it's going to be very, very exciting. And for any young people who happen to be listening to this show right now, there's a revenue stream here. <laughs> so anyway, he was impressed. He came over to my dorm the next day with the paperwork. And he said, you've got to sign up for the race. And I said, oh, well, I, why can't we just go to Boston and jump in and run? And he said, you're a card-carrying AAU member of the Amateur Athletic Union. You can't just go up to Boston and jump in. He said, that's like the Olympic Games. He said, that's a serious race. You've got to pay your $2 entry fee, and you've got to send in your entry form. And I said, well, you know, that other woman didn't wear a number. He said she should have. And I said, well, maybe it's against the rules. He said, ha, knew you'd ask that. Got out the rule book. There was nothing in the rule book about gender in the marathon, and there was nothing on the entry form. He said, see, fill it out, got to mail it in. Well, I'd taken to signing my name K.V. Switzer when I was about 13 because I was writing for the high school newspaper. My dad misspelled my name on my birth certificate. Mm-hmm. And he left the E out. So every time a copy uh, a publisher or, or a copy uh, uh, um, editor would get my copy, they would change the Catherine to with put the E, and so they would misspell it. And it really annoyed me. And – Um, I was also reading J.D. Salinger and E.E. Cummings and T.S. Eliot. So I said, hey, K.V. Switzer is kind of cool for a sports writer. So I started signing my name, K.V. Switzer, and did so all through Syracuse. And when I got the paperwork from Boston, I signed it, K.V. Switzer, when obviously they thought it was from a guy. (laughs) I wasn't trying to defraud them. On the other hand, I didn't go to Boston and say, I'm here. I'm a girl. I just wanted to put my head down and run. And I wanted to do everything right. And um, Arnie said, fill out the entry form. So filled it out. And there you go.
0: And you get your number. And April 19th, 1967. You yep. Get the, it's, it's a lousy day. It's, it's a rainy, cold, wet day. You've got your sweats on. And then the rain lets up a little bit. And all of a sudden, you start taking them off. And race begins take us through what happened next
1: we had had one of the worst winters ever in syracuse and it was beginning to lighten up and be spring and supposedly i was going to be gorgeous in boston and so i had a really cute shorts and top i wanted to look nice i wanted to look nice but arnie said bring your old sweats because we're going to warm up in them and we warm up in them and then we we can throw them away because you never get your gear back at Boston. And I said, okay. So he said, take that old stuff that you, you know, complaining about and and we'll throw it away. So I had my old baggy gray sweats with me. Well, of course the day of the marathon dawned and it was absolutely freaking freezing. I mean, headwind, sleet, driving, driving rain and big snow that kind of piled up on your shoulders and just soaked you through. Oh, it was just, we were utterly miserable. The whole field of men and me looked like refugees, you know, <laughs> had on everything we could scrounge. And there I was in my baggy gray sweats. And I came to the realization that I'm going to try to keep these on as long as I possibly can, because it is really very bad conditions. Um, it was so bad that we pulled up in front of the school to get the registration stuff. And Arnie, Arnie said, look, I'm, you know, I'm the team captain. I'm going to go in and pick up the numbers, or let's just not even go. The, cr- the crowd is so ridiculous. I'm going to go in there. I'll get the numbers, come back. We'll park the car over in the church parking lot. We'll pin on our numbers there. So, okay, so he, because there were a couple other guys that were with us, including my boyfriend. Um, That's another story, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, Anyway, uh, so he he came out to the car with the numbers. We went over and pinned them on and, And there was my number, big 261, which has become quite famous for this reason, which I'll tell you about in a minute. But anyway, oh, I was so proud to have those numbers. I was really excited. You know, there's this really nervous frisson and we went got out of the car and started warming up and and all the guys came over to me and said, "Oh, it's great to see a girl. Wish my wife would run, wish my girlfriend would run." And, and um it, and we and Arnie was really proud. He was saying, "Yeah, I've trained her. You know, she's going to go do great." Da, 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 da. And um, then we all got pushed into the st- the starting corral and the officials checked off our numbers and didn't look up and see my face. You know, I was wearing lipstick and <laughs> I had I had to wear lipstick. And um, my boyfriend, uh, who is a 235-pound uh, ex-All-American football player from Cornell, now was at Syracuse as a graduate student uh, and training for to be a hammer thrower. His dream was to be in the Olympics hammer throw. So he was a big guy, really strong. And he was strutting all around, you know, big man on campus, and, and gun goes off and down the street we went. And and it was really – it's. It's always happy at the start of a marathon, you know, because finally the pressure's off. All you want to do is run. Uh, everybody is, is feeling good for the first couple of miles because you know it's going to kill you later. <laughs> and, um, and everything was really happy. And then um, press truck came by us. They started, if you can imagine this, they started behind the field beeped the horn, made everybody get over. We got, got past us and got right in front of us, and they're grinding their cameras and grew, kind of going crazy because a girl is in the race wearing bib numbers. And for us, we laughed. We just waved and said, Hi, mom, you know, thinking our moms would be watching on the nightly news. When all of a sudden the officials' bus pulled up alongside of us, and this is where the, the scribes were, you know, the guys on, uh, the, with their typewriters. Uh, The photographers are on the truck. The scribes are on the bus, along with the officials, including the race co-directors. And all of a sudden, I heard behind me the scraping sound of leather shoes. Now, all I can just describe to you is that um, when you're a runner, you hear the dog's claws before you see the dog. And when everybody in the race is going ka-punk, kapunk, punk with rubber shoes, and all of a sudden you hear, Kh-h-h-h-h-h-h. I turned quickly and this looked into the, the face of the fiercest guy I'd ever seen. And he was like this, ready to pounce. And he grabbed me by the shoulders and he threw me back like that. And he said, Get the hell out of my race and give me those numbers. And he went to rip my bib numbers off my chest. And I jumped back and I said, Ah, you know, and Arnie jumped in and he pushed him and said, leave her alone. She's okay. I've trained her, leave her alone. And he smashed Arnie and knocked him back. And I, I tried to run then. And he grabbed me by the shirt and pulled me back like that and was clawing at the number on my back. And that's this one. And he didn't get the number, but he got the corner and he, you know, ripped off where it was pinned. So all through the race, this thing flapped right in the back. But anyway. I was getting away from him and all of a sudden I saw my boyfriend, whoa, like a streak, just went cut right through the crowd and just took him out with the most incredible shoulder charge you can imagine. I mean, it it was athleticism at its most supreme. I'd never been close to violence and I'd certainly never been in the middle of a football uh, 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 event where, where that moment happens and it was just, it was electrifying. But oh, was I scared because he smashed this official. And I just felt my stomach drop out. I thought, oh my God, he's killed him. And, and Arnie screamed, run like hell. <laughs> you know, you have to laugh. It was a, it was a terrible moment, Lynn. Honestly, I, I was in tears. I was so afraid and so humiliated. And it was my first big race, and I was only tw- I just turned 20. And run, Arnie says, "Run like hell!" I'm down we went down the street as fast as we could go, and the press truck accelerates and goes after us. Um, and I'm wiping the tears away, and and Tom's, "You're know, run! I kill that guy! And I kill that guy!" And Arnie's going to say, "I'm going! I'm so furious!" And, I'm, and um, the press then starts pillaring me from the truck. You know, like, what are you trying to prove? Are you a suffragette? When are you going to drop out? I said, "I'm not going to drop out." They said, when are you going to drop out? I said, I'm not going to drop out. I'm here to run. I'm just here to run. What, I'm not trying to prove anything. And and finally, and I just put my head down and they realized I wasn't going to talk to them anymore. Um, and they dr- drifted away up to the front of the race where they should have been anyway. And it, then there was that next big moment in my life, really big moment, when Arnie was really quiet and um, Tom was all bashed. He, was, he just took off. He was so furious. Um, and Arnie was really quiet. I knew what he was saying was, what do you want to do? Do you do you want to stop? Do you want to quit? And I said, Arnie, I'm going to finish this race of my hands and my knees if I have to. I said, everybody thinks a woman can't do it. I know I can do it. You know, we ran that 31 miles. I know I can do it. I have to do it now because everybody's going to believe if I quit They'll say, see, women are always jumping into places they're not welcome and can't do it anyway. So, So this was the beginning of really the, the feisty part of the, the modern women, women's feminist movement. 67, Gloria Stein and Betty Friedan were out there pushing for equal rights. And I d- didn't quite get it until that moment, which is, is that why weren't we getting into law school? Why weren't we get allowed to go into medical school? Why were we denied entries to places? Why weren't we getting jobs? Well, you know, and I suddenly said, and why aren't women in the marathon? Well, because people are, are treating you like this, and they're 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 saying you can't do it. And it and when you when you're treated like that, and then you step out because you think you need to, then it just reinforces the belief that women can't. So I had to finish. And it was really amazing. You know, a marathon, a marathon's like going through a life. And when you go to a certain point, and in the marathon, usually it's about 21 miles. And 21 miles in Boston is Heartbreak Hill. And it's not uncoincidental, which that's the break point in the race. Because that's just the moment when you run out of glycogen. You run out of your basic fuel. And um, and you either crash and burn. Or in my case, I had these kind of epiphany moments. And, and I, I got to the top of Heartbreak Hill. And we're all on fumes. Everybody's on fumes at 21. And I suddenly realized it wasn't old Jock Semple's fault, the guy that attacked me in the race. He's a product of his time. So you can't get really, really angry at somebody who doesn't know any better. What you do is you have to change the system. So then I got angry at women. I said, why aren't the women here? And then it was like, how stupid could you be? They're not here because they've been treated badly or they're afraid or they've been told their uterus is going to fall out and, and they're too afraid to run. And this has been the most, best thing that's ever happened to me in my life. Somehow i got to create the opportunities for them. If people have the opportunity, they they can take it, but they have to have the opportunity. Somebody needs to do that for them. And suddenly it was this big load off my back. And we were flying in the last, you know, uh, six miles down to Boston. And we were rolling. And, um, and when I got to the finish line, I said, Darnie, I said, I feel so good. I could go all the way back to Hopkinton, except that that I had blood coming out of my shoes because my feet were yeah. so bad, badly blistered. But it was an amazing moment. I knew I wanted to become a better athlete because I was going to get pilloried for running four hours and 20 minutes, which is acceptable now. But in those days, it was a jogging time. Um, and I wanted to create the opportunities for women in sport. And it was really amazing because it laid out a life plan. And I did become a good athlete. I went on to win the New York City Marathon and I dropped that four hour and 20 minute time down to 251, which is still a very, very good time. That was way back in 1975. Um, and then I began to, to, as you said, to promote and create. And I began writing proposals to businesses and um, and create. A, I created a global program Eventually in 27 countries, 400 races, eventually over a million women now have participated in that program. I took it to Avon Cosmetics. And this is, this is another thing I'd love young people to, to listen to, if anybody is listening on this part, is that you know, I didn't think that the, the, the company would even read my proposal, but I decided to choose a company that was a women's kind of company that was, you know, was welcoming and, and, and feminine. And therefore dispel that whole masculine, arduous, sweaty myth, you know, that, that if a cosmetics company is sponsoring, it's got to be okay for women <laughs> and women only. So they're not going to be intimidated by by guys. And instead of getting an icky trophy, they'd get a beautiful silver or gold necklace or something. Um, so all feminine touches. So I wrote this proposal up and, and I took it to them as a, do you ever use the expression as a flyer, Lynn? Yep. You know, I just took took it out. There's a flyer. Take it shape. Yeah, ne- they're never going to buy this. Um, anyway, the, the the guy who read it said, um, he said, I doubt we'll do ever do anything in running, but he said if you can think like this, we'd love you to work for us. And I said, oh great, because that's you know, as soon as the doors open, that's close enough for me. Um, and he said, what would it take to get you here? So whatever I was making, like. $12,000 or something like that. I said, Oh, 30. <laughs> Cause I knew he wasn't going to hire me. And he said, that's no problem. <laughs> and I got the job. I got this job. And I, I created a job that took me around the world. Uh, in, and as I say, in 27 countries and with those countries, we could get all the data and statistics of women's running both in terms of performances, but international numbers And then we could get medical evidence from doctors who ran, who proved that women had the endurance and that the marathon was a great event for them. And the shot put wasn't necessarily a great event for them, but we weren't going to be damaged by the marathon. And we took that data and statistics to um, Peter Uberoth and his team at, at the L.A. Olympics and then on to the IOC with their help. And they voted in the women's marathon in the 1984 Olympic Games. Isn't that the most amazing story?
0: Amazing story. What's even even more amazing is, number one, when you were running and you were training in 1971, 72, you were were working on your times, doing a lot of dedicated work. Um, One of the things you looked around and you saw were the amenities for these races were so below standard. And you wanted to improve them. I mean... There were stories of you and other competitors. There were no toilets, not enough porta potties. So all of a sudden, you had to squat in the woods in order to take care of yourself before you ran.
1: Yep. The Boston Marathon almost got canceled because all the people in Hopkinton got so upset with people in their rose bushes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I mean, the foresight you had that you decided, okay, you know what? It's one thing to get a good time, but it's going to be, if this thing is going to really take off, these races have to be first class and Absolutely. they've got to really be with technology and they've got to be timed right and they've got to be amenable to television and media and sponsorship and all of this when you're running, when you're out there, the things that in you were sometimes when you're training in those days, When you were going for your time, sometimes you'd be out there for 100 miles during a week. And all this time you're running, the creative juices in your head were always flowing, always flowing. You're thinking, what can I do this? How can I do that? Um, Where did you get the energy, number one, to do it, especially later on? Because when you're working full time, you get up at 5.30, you train, you work, you get done, you train some more. You come into New York City, and you basically have dinner, and you know you do this for months on end. Where was the energy? Where did where'd you get it from? Well, it was a
1: drive of uh, first of all. I'm, I think I'm naturally gifted. You know, I think I do have a great constitution, and I'm and I'm very very grateful for my health. Um, but but the other thing is is that there it needed to be done. There was a purpose here that, that I knew that that really lives could be changed profoundly. If, if we just let it rest with the IOC, we wouldn't have had a women's marathon. In other words, they would accept another event every year for women. Uh, it would have been 2012 before we would have had a women's marathon. So I thought we could, could leapfrog all of that. And I was, that's why I was pushing so hard, but you know, basically as a runner myself, I'd get in a race and I'd, I'd be really pissed off if I gave it everything I had and then the course was short or, or the course was long and our times were not accurate or that how, I mean, how uncivil it is not to have toilets and um, are those things expensive? Yes. Okay. Well, let's figure out how to get it paid for and, you know, show, show people that they, if they're sponsorship, they get great visibility. You know, you got to create all of that for them. And, and, you know, of course I did have writing skills and, um, and then I went on and took a master's degree in public relations. Um, didn't write about this. This would have been a great PhD project, (laughs) but, but, um, but you know, how to write a press release and how to go and engage sponsors, um, and, and seeking out sponsorships is hard. You just got to be relentless. You got to be a dog with a bone, but there we go. You know, that's what my dad said. I always was. (laughs) Oh. But I also believed, you see, fervently in what it could do for women. And I and I still believe that. Now I've created a, a foundation. We'll get to that in a minute. A nonprofit called 261, there we go, 261, right, right there, um, and, and uh, 261 Fearless. And, um, it, and we're reaching out the same way. So it goes on and on and on and on. It never stops. You know, once you once you accomplish something, you know, you, you think that you've achieved it, but there's always the next step to take, whether you're an athlete or whether you're um, <clears throat> or whether you're an activist.
0: But here's one of the other things that was really, really amazing about you and what you did was all of these particular goals that you had had a tremendous amount of navigation and winding, and political maneuvering, and working with staffs, I mean you basically found a way to get people to work together, to work together towards a common goal, to work not only through things here in this country, in different cities like Atlanta, but internationally in Japan, And London, trying to get a a marathon through the streets of London, where it had never ever happened before, and this took tremendous not only people skills, organizational skills, but the ability for others to believe in you. How did you mind wind up, you know, accomplishing those goals?
1: First of all, the ideas and the belief also comes from running itself. Okay. So when I, even now at age 75, when I go out for my run, I usually take part of that time in the run, say, okay, now I'm going to solve this problem. Or if you're a journalist and you're on a deadline and you need to get that opening lead, you know, it'll come to you in about eight or nine minutes. If you focus on that, it really is. The, there's oxygen over the brain synapses. Now, I don't know how it works. I'm not a scientist. All I know is it works. It's also a time for calming. And 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 meditation—that's what running is to me. It's much more than the physical act. But I would take a piece of the problem every night on those long runs, and I would work it out. And I would go through all the if onlys and the ifs and the buts and the and the uh, barricades and how how I, I knew I you can't sometimes break through the barricade, but you can go around it. <laughs> you got to figure out the route around it. Takes longer, but you can figure it out. Um, but working with people, what you do is, is first of all, you work with people who also believe in what's happening and believe in the, and the power of, um, human accomplishment and the deservedness of the opportunity. And I think everybody in the world has been shortchanged on an opportunity sometime in your life. And when you have a chance to create one for somebody else, it is a very, very uplifting experience. It's, uh, It's what I call my two, six, one moment. It's the moment when, you know, we can, we can make positive change. And, and as a team, I'm, I'm a pretty good motivator. I learned that from my dad. Uh, People don't work for money. You know, they work for appreciation. And if they feel that they're a part of a bigger good and they're part of, um, making something happen, um, they want to be on that team. And every every coach, I think, knows that that you know when you get the team together, that's that's the thing that makes it makes it sing. Um, you know, I've had setbacks and I've gotten my nose broken plenty of times, but you know, you just kind of have to you know wipe it off and get on and get up and get it get started again. So London was a really good one, though. Okay, um, we really wanted to take the final uh, of the year series of Avon races. We, we wound up every year with a marathon. And the winners of all those races would come together to go to that marathon. And that was open to anybody, any woman who wanted to run, but also we paid the expenses of those women from around the world. So women were racing all over the place, competing to earn their points so they'd get a free trip to a place like London, you know, or Paris, or Bangkok, or wherever we were going. Something amazing. Um, You know, it was a a huge experience for them and a thrill. So, but London was unique in, in itself because the London streets had never been closed for a sports event before. In fact, when we did it, the leader of the Greater London Council had a wonderful reception for us. And he said, I toast you ladies. He said, we've only closed these streets before for the Queen. Well, also the subtext to this is, That the people in London, this is 1980, so the people in London had been watching what had happened in New York, where Fred Lebo had changed the face of New York City on one day a year by creating the big New York City Marathon. And they weren't blind to the fact that the New York City Marathon was now bringing in millions, even in those days, to the coffers of New York, to restaurants and giving New York a great reputation. Because by the way, the crime rate is at its lowest in New York on Marathon Day. Did you know that?
0: Anyway, so
1: so London said, we should have a marathon. Well, now here we come with 150 women who are from all over the world, and they're getting all this publicity. Let's do a dry run with them. You know, they didn't say that, but that I'll take whatever I can get. We we closed those downtown streets, Scotland Yard and the Greater London Police were incredible. We you know, we ran across Westminster Bridge and right up Buckingham, you know, Palace Road and oh my god. And it was huge. And of course, the next year was the first ever London Marathon. And that's become also one of the biggest, most amazing races in the world. Now, the organizers of the London Marathon now don't really want to admit that the women were first, but that's okay. I don't (laughs) care. (laughs) We were there. We did it. It It's okay. They would have done it eventually. No problem. But but it was happy. We were happy to be the first. It was it was amazing because, listen, I don't care who gets the credit for it, you know, we we're, were all there. You know, I, I got, I got my nose broken really big in Japan when we organized incredibly beautiful races and the federation there kept telling me that the women there are never going to run in Japan. And indeed the women really were still walking and they do now still in many ways, three feet behind their husbands on the street. And I said, no, no, it will be successful. And I said, we would we'll just do a 10 K race, you know, right around emperor's palace. And, uh, no, no, it has to be 5 K 10 K is too long for women. And I said, but women are running marathons. Oh, not in Japan. No, 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 no. Anyway, they said nobody would come. And we opened up the, that club. We said the streets are for women. We're going to do this. Something like 1,500 women showed up. That is incredible. This is 1976 in Japan. And the next year, two years later, they, they went behind my back and they got another cosmetics company to come in, and, in Japan, Japanese cosmetics company, and sponsored their series of races. And all I had to do was laugh, you know, because who cares? You know who won? The women won. The women now had all these opportunities. And are they not going to vote for getting the women's marathon in the Olympic Games? No, I've got to vote for Japan. (laughs) So you have to look at it every which way.
0: Sure. Now, one of the other things you did, um, one of the crowning achievements of your career was in 1984, they get set to run the Women's Marathon in the Olympic Games. Now, Catherine Switzer is in a different location. She'd done a little bit of broadcasting, but now she, along with Al Michaels, is in the broadcast booth. You become a broadcaster. How did that feel?
1: I, I felt um, I was privileged and proud to be there. I had did my homework. I knew every woman in the race, but I'll tell you the truth, Lynn. I had then and always felt uncomfortable in broadcasting, and this will surprise you. I uh, I retired from broadcasting in two thousand eighteen. Um, I had for after in Boston. I had I broadcast the Boston Marathon forty two consecutive years, and they couldn't believe I wanted to retire. And I said, you know what? Every year I feel more uncomfortable because I always feel no matter how much I know, I can only, you, you know, this as a broadcaster, you can only deliver a tiny bit yep. of this huge vast compendium and you have to keep listening to people talking to you while you're trying to talk. So you really, I just found it all very frustrating. But anyway, that was, that was a terrific, terrific moment. And I'll never forget. Um, uh, you know, I, I was, I was surprised by Joan Benoit winning the race because I knew she had a bad knee. Uh, I thought Ingrid Christensen, the Norwegian rec- world record holder, was going to win, um, and that Greta Weiss would probably be second. Um, but Joan took the race by the throat and did what she can do. You know, it was unbelievable performance. Um, everybody said it was the greatest marathon a-, a woman ever ran. But on the other hand, if she had started too fast and Greta Weiss won the race, they would have said Greta Weiss ran the smartest race any woman ever ran. You see, you never know with sports, right? But at any rate, when she came toward the tunnel and into the Olympic Stadium, I had always said that nobody in the world would understand how important the moment was until the first woman came into that Olympic Stadium, because then they they would all see it on television. And Al Michaels obviously knew that as well. We hadn't pre- discussed it beforehand, and but as she approached the stadium, he passed a note over to Marty and me, and he said, "When she's in this, when she goes into this." The tunnel let the crowd take it as she comes out of the tunnel and so when she went into the tunnel he went like this and then Joan came out into that stadium of 95,000 people going out of their minds because this was a great moment for America and great moment for women and it was I think everybody understood what a breakthrough it was and I tried really hard not to cry you know you, you feel your eyes well up with tears because I was thinking, you know, this is as important as giving women the right to vote. <laughs> this it's the physical equivalent of what we did in nineteen, what those women did in nineteen twenty, um, which was the, an intellectual social acceptance of women. This was the physical acknowledgement that women can do the hardest and longest event in the running event in the Olympic Games, uh, uh, as well as the men. So that was huge. But the other thing was, not the 95,000 people in the stadium. It was a 2.2 billion people watching on television, an un- unthinkable audience. And every country, you have to think about countries where, where you know, people had, you know, didn't even have a car, uh, much less uh, they walked, you know, 26 miles or they had ridden a donkey or a bike over that distance. Uh, everybody knew it was far, <laughs> you know. You look at the track and somebody's running 400 meters. You can't tell, you know, if they're, if they're running in 43 seconds or they're running in 47 seconds. And it's a light year of difference. <laughs> okay. It, it's same as swimming. You just, you can't really tell. But everybody knows distance. Everybody. And I said, this is going to change the world. And I thought it, I thought it would. Um, and it did in many ways. But actually, it was just the next step to the next step
0: i got two questions for you before I let you go, which I don't want to do, but uh, unfortunately I have to. Number one, if Jock Will did not stop you, did not jump off that bus in 1967, did not just kind of looked at you and said, okay, and just how would that have changed Catherine Switzer and Women's Marathon?
1: You know, first of all, sometimes, Lynn, the worst things in your life can become the best things. When Jacques Semple attacked me, it was the worst thing that had ever happened in my life. I was humiliated, terrified. I was expelled from the Athletic Federation. I was pilloried by the press. I got plenty of fan mail, etc., but I was pilloried by uh, the press, and I got a lot of hate mail, too. But it turned out to be the best thing in my life because Jock Semple created one of the greatest photographs in the history, not only of sports, but in the women's rights movement. So it was a tremendous vehicle for me to have that. However, I always would have uh, pushed for women's equality in that sport. I always would have created events because I knew how good I was feeling with my running. And I wanted other women to feel that way. It might not have been quite as, I wouldn't say easy because sometimes I'd go into a meeting and people were very defensive because they thought that I was some kind of big rabble rouser. Um, but it 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 uh, that confrontation really just expedited my whole feeling.
0: Now, if there would be a Hall of Fame of life, a Hall of Fame for the very, very elite people that have changed the world, Catherine Switzer would be voted in on the first ballot. <laughs> and, I had and, a Jesus. <laughs> uh, right there, uh, all of a sudden, they come to you. They're putting up a plaque right next to you, a statue of, of of Catherine. On that plaque, they say, "Okay, Catherine, we want you to write what people will read about you for decades and decades to come. What would you write on that plaque?"
1: Do I have a lot of space or just one line? Just
0: one line. Let's just do. as much space as you want.
1: No, nah, I don't want to go on that long. I would say, um, I wish it were my line. It would, it is, uh, this is not what I would write, but it works just still. She persisted. <laughs> I, I love that. You know, it is about the Congresswoman, you know, who, who, who stayed, but, but I, I think still she persisted, you know? Um, Uh, And also that opportunity is everything, create opportunity. Hey, and on that note, one thing I do want to talk about real quickly is about negatives becoming positive. You know, my old bib number, 261, and and this corner ripped off, okay? Everybody can see that, Um, has now, we have taken that number. It suddenly became a number, a cult number, meaning kind of like fearless in the face of adversity. And people were inking it on their arms and, and sending me notes to say that this number makes me feel fearless. Um, and they would put it on their back in a race. And then they started sending me pictures of their tattoos. And I got kind of really thought, well, this is really weird. And and um, we decided to do something with this because if you don't do something with it, somebody else is gonna take the idea. And what we did is we created 261 Fearless, the, ver- the very words that they were using because um, we needed to create A nonprofit around the world that empowered these women the same way I've been talking all this time to you about. And these this is a a series of clubs, and and women can become club leaders, and we train them to be a club leader, and we train them also to then go on and get a further education, empower them, and then they can deliver this program to other women. Um, And we're already, we're only like six years old, and we're already in 12 countries. So we're really, really excited about this. And we really think when I talked about you know getting the women's marathon in the Olympic Games, that changed the world. Well, it did, but it was only the next step. And what are you going to do to take the next step? You've got to create something for everybody. There are plenty of women out there, not only in the Mideast, East, but you know she could be your next door neighbor. Is a woman who maybe is just afraid of something, or to take that first step, or to 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 empower herself. And, you know, whether it's leave a bad relationship or finish an education or get a better job or be have courage to ask for a raise, all of those things can come from running. And that's what we're trying to do. So I, I'd really love everybody to go to 261fearless.org, join us, contribute, whatever. Um, we'd love to have you as part of this. We, we think we can continue to change the world. I think that's really important. And, and, the, and the, we love the logo because you see the old bib is... Um, the corners ripped off. See, the corners ripped off. <laughs> that's a, that's that's the uh, the the nod to old Jock Semple.
0: <laughs> exactly. Um, are you happy with the state of of racing and running today? Do you think it's kind of where you want it to be, or is there something that could be done that could be a little bit better?
1: Uh, You know, that's a a little bit of a tricky question, Lynn, because we're just coming back into it. You know, with two years, we've had to close down most of the races. Uh, I feel very sorry for a lot of the the smaller races, which, you know, had had to go belly up because, you know, they lost a lot of money in terms of, you know, you get a race all organized and you get the medals, you get the T-shirts and then it's canceled. So, you know, it's not as though, oh, well, we'll run tomorrow. You don't know when you're going to run again. The numbers are phenomenal now of registrations are wildly up for Boston comrades, uh, New York City, the they, registrations are coming in like crazy because you know what? People always want to be together. They want to d- feel that heroism, not just alone you know, out when they're training, but together is it's uh, incredibly uplifting. Um, and I think that running has done something that is really, really huge, which is it has shown diversity, inclusion, equality, and respect. We don't care about your gender. We don't care about your race or your religion. We're out there motivating each other. And I'll never forget running the Boston, uh, New York City Marathon again, 2018, I was, um, uh, it was f- only four days after that terrorist incident on the West Side Highway. And they thought they were going to have to cancel the race. And people were calling me and the media were calling me. You shouldn't run. You know, it's dangerous. And I said, you know, I'm going to be surrounded by 50,000 people, all of whom I don't know. And I'm in the safest place in the world. <laughs> you, know, you know, we're there to motivate each other. So um, that, I feel very strongly about that and what we can do. But is there something we can do better? Um, I don't know. It's funny. I'm I'm an old fashioned runner with very little equipment and I don't use the apps and the and and all the phone stuff and the Strabas and all that. Uh, I just like to run the less gear and stuff I have, the better for me. But I think the technology in many ways is um, making the sport better for a lot of people who maybe don't have access to a big city race or training. You know, they, they can get get that uh, from from these different devices and things. So, yeah, I think we're, we're, we're constantly growing. But basically, putting one foot in front of the other stays the same.
0: I mean, one of the things you've always said is the hardest thing is to take that first step. Take that initial step. Once you get that going, then the rest is all something you want to do and can do. Yep. Uh, One of the things that's that's, that's great about Catherine is she's written three books. Uh, The one that everybody should read is called Marathon Woman. Yay! (laughs) It's her biography. It tells not only the story of her and 1967, but it goes into great detail about what she went through to create these opportunities which are so prevalent today. Uh, Before that, She had written a book in 1997 called Running and Walking for Women Over 40, which is kind of a guide to people who should get off the couch and get out there and do stuff. So, and then with her beloved husband, Roger, she has written a book called 26.2 Marathon Stories, which is a pictorial and it's kind of a history of the marathon done beautifully and showing things that you could never even imagine. And just embodying this great event into a historic pictorial. So you can also follow Catherine on marathon um, org. No, um,
1: marathon com. Dot com.
0: Excuse me. I'm sorry. And mm-hmm. uh, she's also on Twitter. Instagram, Facebook, and of course, 261fearless.org. That's where I got the document, I mean, she's all over the place. Um, she is a wonder of the world. She is a woman who made such a difference to everyone who now runs. All these women who go out there, who we see on the roads, running at one time, It was not something they could socially do. Now, it is not only accepted, but it's a way of life. Catherine Switzer, it has been an honor to have you on Overtime. Thank you for taking the time. Good luck with everything else you're going to do, because we know you'll never stop.
1: Thank you, Lynn. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure and an honor.